That's fantastic. Well, this is the Surviving Healthcare Podcast, and I have a distinguished guest today, Dr. Patrick Moore, who was one of the co-founders of Greenpeace and who has spent his career deep monking many of the climate narratives that are going on now. Welcome, Dr. Moore. It's a, it's a pleasure to see you, and and I, I'm very impressed with your work. You've given me a lot less to worry about. I was worried about all kinds of things before. I'm sure you've heard this before. Yes, it's great to be with you, Robert, because um, we come from different backgrounds, but have arrived at similar places in many ways, it sounds. Uh, I started out uh, living in nature on the northwest tip of Vancouver Island on a floating village in the rainforest with no road to it. And so I, 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 I had a childhood that was more like someone 100 years earlier would have had. Uh, and I, I grew up to, to, to love nature innately. I didn't realize uh, that until I was shipped off to boarding school in Vancouver and had to learn to live in the big city. But then I, I realized how lucky I'd been. And from then on, I excelled in the life sciences. That was, I wanted to understand evolution. I wanted to understand genetics. I wanted to understand biochemistry, human biochemistry 410 was a great course where you learned the whole cycle of metabolism inside the body, which is similar to all the rest of the animals anyways, but, uh, and, and just fantastic. And then I, I didn't really want to cut up dead animals. So I, 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 I sort of moved into more of the botany side of things, plants. And then I discovered what photosynthesis was and how it had evolved and how it was really the key to all of life on earth. And that uh, CO2 was the primary element or molecule involved in that process. And uh, carbon is the basis of all life. And now they call CO2 carbon pollution. And uh, so the whole thing is completely bass backwards. I mean, you would not believe how totally opposite the real world is to what these people are preaching. The fact is it's colder now than it has been for almost the entire history of life on earth. And the fact is CO2 is lower now, even with our additions to it, than it has been during almost the entire history of the planet. As a matter of fact, it reached its lowest level in Earth's history, which is 4.6 billion years, 20,000 years ago, at the peak of the most recent glaciation. Some people call it the last glaciation, but that could be interpreted as being the final glaciation. When in fact, in this Pleistocene Ice Age, which we came into 2.6 million years ago, there have been over 40 major glaciations advancing and then retreating, covering the whole of Canada each time in, 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 in the more recent ones. And this one is actually colder than the last three were. So the Pleistocene Ice Age is still cooling as an ice age. The ice age before this one was the Karoo, K-A-R-O-O, Karoo. It lasted 100 million years, from 350 to 250 million years ago. We know that for a fact. The one before that wasn't quite as long. It was more like 10 or 20 million years. This one is actually still in its baby steps, possibly. We don't know the future in that sense. We don't really know why ice ages happen. It may have something to do with the movement of the Earth's tectonic plates, the ocean circulation that results from that. That's the best guess anybody's got, but it's not, certainly not proven. 
And it is certainly not proven that CO2 is too high and that we're all going to fry. And that is what they're saying, that the temperature is, is, is going to get one degree warmer than it is now, and the whole world will collapse. When in fact, the temperature of the earth has been much warmer than it is now, not at the equator. The, the equator remains fairly steady when the earth warms and cools. It warms and cools inadvertently towards the poles. So in other words, 5 million years ago, there were forests on the Canadian Arctic islands where now it's just pure tundra. And there were giant camels in those forests. And that was when the earth was warmer. And it wasn't that long ago, it was 30 to 50 million years ago. We've been in a 50 million year cooling period and it is absolutely true. You can see it on the internet. There's no doubt about it. The Eocene thermal maximum, which, which peaked around 50 million years ago was the result of a long period of warming that occurred coming out of the Karoo Ice Age, which as I say, ended 250 million years ago. So that was like a hundred million year warming period that occurred and then a 50 million year cooling period to today. Now we can talk short term, like the last 10,000 years, we're in the Holocene interglacial period, which happened coming out of the last most recent major glaciation, which peaked about 20,000 years ago. It took 10,000 years to come out of that glaciation to where we are now, which is about 10,000 years into an interglacial period. And to all knowledge that we have, it has been cooling for the last 6,000 years, which indicates as the last interglacial periods, which last about 10, 12,000 years on average, that we're now beginning this, the slow slide 80,000 years into the next major glaciation. So that's a completely different picture than these people are portraying, and they're in such short term. They don't care about anything that happened before 1850. You know, like there were 3 billion years plus of life before 1850. And, and million of mammals? Yes. Yeah, no, not 500. No, 50, not, 50. not 500. Almost 500 million years of modern life, which is yeah. multicellular life. Before 500 and some million years ago, all life was unicellular. In other words, one cell, microscopic and confined to the sea. There was no life on land until about 400, 380 million years ago. That's when life came on the land. And there were no trees until the Carboniferous era, which was more like 300, 250 in that period, million years ago, when forests emerged. That was a huge change because up until then, the biomass of life was fairly small because it was all little things and, 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 and squishy things. But when wood evolved, which was the, the evolution of lignin in plants, which then was able to take the cellulose that had already been evolved in plants for over 300, for, well, sorry, for 3 billion years, uh, cellulose was the first plastic. And people don't even know what the monomer of cellulose is. Like plastics are polymers, like polystyrene, polyesterine, polyvinyl chloride, they are all chains of, of identical molecules making a long string. That's why they are, can be woven into shirts because they are basically fibers. And so cellulose fiber is, is like a, a piece of rebar. 
you take a piece of rebar, you can't stand up a 30 feet piece of rebar and expect it to stand there. It's going to fall over because it's limp. But when you put lignin around the cellulose, lignin is like the concrete around rebar in a concrete column. So in fact, life invented the equivalent of a concrete column, which is the, the trunk of a tree, the stem of a tree, uh, some 300 and odd million years ago. And when trees evolved, suddenly the biomass of the earth became at least 10 or even maybe 100 times what it was before. If you look at a mountain covered in trees and think of how many people it would take to weigh that much, you can see that the, you know, there's orders of magnitude more biomass in trees than there is in any other species of life on earth. Eh, just a little tidbit there, kind of wander. I like wandering off into this. Okay. You, you know, the thing that um, seems most germane here is addressing the specific arguments that these uh, quote environmentalists uh, tell the world. And the, the one thing that impressed me was I saw graphs that showed little relationship between temperature and and uh, CO2 in the atmosphere over, uh, I mean, many years. And I, I forget the scale. You, you understand that stuff. You're, you're like a, you're like a, hang on, sorry. Those are like colors. <laughs> Eskimo knows many, uh, many shades of, uh, you know, many names for snow. I mean, you're obviously a polymath, you know, but so address the CO2 argument that they claim the CO2 is warming the cl climate and all that stuff. Well, the, the truth is the hardest thing about all of this, and the reason they're able to get away with making scare stories is because CO2 is invisible. And it's like radiation in that sense. And also what the bad thing is in GMOs. Nobody's ever been able to show it to us what it is. As a matter of fact, the funny thing about GMOs and the bad thing in it is that the bad thing doesn't have a name. And there's nothing that doesn't have a name or a chemical formula. If it's a material thing, it is made of material, which is one of the 94 elements in the periodic table or more if it's a molecule. And so they cannot say what the name of the bad thing is. That's because it doesn't exist. It's not only invisible, but it doesn't exist. But radiation and CO2 are invisible things that do exist. And so they've made up scare stories about radiation when in fact it's pretty much well-established that small amounts of radiation are actually good for you. They challenge the body's repair mechanism and make it stronger. That's called hormesis. All radiologists know that word but it's never in the press. Have you ever seen the word hormesis written down anywhere? But it is a theory that is fairly well established that when you challenge the body's cellular repair mechanism, which we have, and that's why nothing is toxic at the minutest possible level, because your body is capable of repairing itself in the face of any material there is up to a certain level. And some things like snake venom are really, really poisonous at very, very small levels. But at a certain level, they're not because your body is able to repair itself faster than the damage is occurring. And that's the same thing with radiation. Now, diagnostic when it comes to radio diagnostic radiology might even be good for you. Everybody's yes, afraid well, of, of the radiation produced by a CT scan. But the, the theories are that the hormesis might even produce a, a good effect. Yes, it, it, well, it probably does. Uh, it, it just makes sense that, it, that if it does challenge the body's cellular repair mechanism, which it clearly 
does up at a certain level. And then, then at a certain level, it becomes damaging because your body isn't able to repair itself faster than the radiation is damaging you. Now with CO2, it's a totally different situation, of course. Carbon dioxide is technically a greenhouse gas, but a fairly weak one. And also it, its effect re reduces exponentially, logarithmically, as you increase it in the atmosphere. So at a certain point, adding more of it makes virtually no effect at all. It's only at very low levels that it actually has a, a, a significant effect and, and it's never been down that low. I'm talking 10 parts per million instead of where the lowest it ever has got to is 180 during the most recent glaciation, it went down to 180, which is only 30 parts per million above the death of plants. Plants can't survive below 150 ppm. It's not as if they need just need CO2, they need a certain concentration of it to be able to make use of it. And, 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 and we right. came close to reaching that level. That would be the death of life if all the plants died, if, if CO2 went, continued to go down. And most people have no idea why CO2 has gone from 5,000 parts per million when modern life emerged, and, and it, it didn't stop modern life from emerging, at 5,000 parts per million, which is more than 10 times what it is now. And over the millennia, on average, CO2 has continually declined. There were some ups and downs as there are with temperature and virtually any other parameter you can name, there's ups and downs, but the general trend has been definitely way downwards to the point where it went from 5,000 ppm to 180. And the 180 was getting close to threatening the existence of life. We come along and inadvertently found all these fossil fuels to use for energy and started putting CO2 back into the atmosphere where it came from in the first place. That is the first point for people to understand. All the CO2 we're putting back into the air came from the air in the first place or from the water. It was in the carbon cycle life removed it. All fossil fuels are the result of life from photosynthesis. Coal is made from trees and oil and gas are made from sea creatures. The bodies of sea creatures sinking to the bottom, the organic matter turned into oil and gas in the marine sediments and eventually many of those marine sediments like the whole of the prairies, for example, uh, the, the, the grasslands of Central North America, that was all a sea bottom at one time. That's why the oil and gas is there. And the coal is where forests were buried and turned into hydrocarbons. So carbohydrates turned into hydrocarbons. But the carbon there came from CO2 either in the sea or in the air and was lost to the carbon cycle or sequestered, as they say. And here they are now wanting to purposefully take CO2 out of the atmosphere with big machines that cost a fortune and use a lot of energy, we, we, we should be putting CO2 into the atmosphere, but we don't have to be doing it as fast as we are. We've actually really improved the CO2 level in the atmosphere to where plants are growing 30% faster in many places due NASA, to the increased CO2. NASA photographs document that over since 1965 or something, right? Yes, it's well documented. And that's a good thing. It's good for life. It's, it's, and, and warmth is also good for life. Cold is the enemy of life. 
10 to 20 times more people die from cold than heat in the world every year. And the, the, the whole thing is so, so backwards, it boggles the mind. I mean, they are, they are pushing a narrative which is suicidal for civilization, net zero, right? The idea that wind and solar can provide all the energy and that there will be batteries. There, these batteries don't exist in anywhere near the ability that, that they would need to if you had most of your electricity being generated by wind and solar. One way to look at it is wind and solar are approximately 30% or one third available. The rest of the time, they're not. The rest of the time, you'd have to use batteries. So you have to have batteries that would hold twice the amount of electricity that the wind and energy can produce, the wind and solar can produce if it was supplying the whole amount of electricity. This means that, you see, you can't charge the batteries when the wind isn't blowing. The only time you can charge the batteries is when the wind and solar is working. When the wind and solar is working, it also has to supply the whole grid's requirement and charge batteries with twice as much energy as the grid requires. So therefore you have to build three times as much capacity of wind and solar as you would with hydro, nuclear, or coal and gas. So it's, it's just completely suicidal. It's not possible, uh, at, at, at technically it's not possible, Never mind financially. So they, they, they are just in a complete pipe dream. These are urban, green, woke fantasy people who are trying to tell us we can do this. And they're getting away with it. I mean, the, and one of the reasons that you and I have moved from maybe being, you know, very liberal, which I, I'm very liberal in all of my social beliefs, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty conservative though about economics and the hard sciences. Uh, and, and now this woke thing has rejected that completely. Even, even the liberals are, uh, who, who went woke are nuts. So that, that's why there's a big split there now. And we'll see what happens out of this. But God help us if the people who want to make all the electricity from wind and solar win the, the game for even a period of 10 years, they'll have us so deep in an economic mess. Uh, and, and, and the other thing is, they don't seem to care that the poorest of the poor are the ones who suffer the most from their policies. You know, that's, that's just a, a straight fact. The more electricity costs, the harder it is on the lower level people in society in terms of income. So it, it is, I, I, I just feel like the, the only approach is a revolutionary approach from my perspective to try to get across. And as I try to do in my book, Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom, I try to show many, many examples of where these people are lying outright. And one of the funniest ones is the polar bear. They say the polar bear is going to go extinct because the ice is all going to melt on the poles. Well, first, if you just go to a website that shows the extent of the ice today, when it's already started melting, but quite a bit, because the sun comes up on the equinox, March the 21st, the sun comes up at the, at the North Pole. It's been down for six months. It's been dark. That's why the ice forms, because there isn't any sunlight to melt it. And so 
if you look at where it is even today, the entire Arctic Ocean is covered in ice, plus parts of the oceans around it. There is, there's no open ocean in the Arctic during the winter. It's only during the summer when the sun melts some of the peripheral ice and you end up with a big blob of ice over the North Pole, but open water north of Siberia and in the Canadian Arctic islands, you get some open water. That's a good thing because plankton needs sunlight to grow in the sea. And what do seals eat? I mean, polar bears eat, they eat seals. So if there's no plankton, there's no krill. And if there's no krill, there's no fish. And if there's no fish, there's no seals. And if there's no seals, there's no polar bears. So it's good that the ice is not completely covering the Arctic Ocean all summer long. But the most important point about polar bears is that if it were not for climate change, polar bears would not exist. They are descended from the Eurasian brown bear, otherwise known as the grizzly bear on this side of the world. They're the same species, the Eurasian brown bear and the grizzly bear. But as the earth cooled into the Pleistocene ice age and the Arctic began to freeze over in the winters, as it had not been for a hundred million years, more actually, the brown bears were able to go out onto the ice and hunt seals. And they, through divergent evolution, one species turned into two. That happens a lot. It's pretty well the only way things can happen. You can't just have a species appearing out of nowhere. The polar bear is an evolutionary result of grizzly bears and Eurasian brown bears going out onto the ice into a completely different environment than they evolved in themselves. And so gradually over the tens and hundreds of thousands of years, they became two different species. They haven't actually diverged completely because they can still successfully mate with each other, polar bears and grizzly bears, and have viable offspring, which is basically the definition of a species. So technically from a taxonomical point of view, Grizzly bears and polar bears are still the same species, but we've given them different names because they are so different and that's reasonable. I mean, this, the thing about whether they can breed together is a technicality. They are really in two different, completely different environments today. And that took at least half a million years to happen during this 2.5 million year ice age. So if it weren't for, if it weren't for climate change and the cooling of the earth, out of the Eocene thermal maximum, eventually into the Pleistocene ice age, polar bears would not exist. So the, the, the polar bear census department showed that the number of polar bears increased dramatically in the last, how long? Absolutely, well, the one they're, thing- They're eating it, the Inuits. The Inuits are complaining that they're getting eaten up there. There's so yes. many polar bears. They, they passed a polar bear management plan because it had become so extreme that it was like, almost the death penalty if you killed a polar bear. Not really, but you know, it was, it was against the law. And so they passed a polar bear management plan saying that you could intervene if the polar bear was in your house or trying to kill you, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Oh, and, and, Sounds and like that, California gun laws. Yes, but that- You can't shoot him even in your own house. That received no media, right? Except in Nunavut, which is where they are. Yeah, a couple of newspapers <laughs> up there with population 1200 got to read about the polar bear management plan. But the main thing they didn't get to find out, the people down south here, 
was that in 1973, I mean, that's not that long ago. There's still quite a few people alive today that were born before then, like me. <laughs> and uh, all the polar nations in 1973, on the advice of wildlife biologists, passed an international treaty. Every single one of the Arctic nations passed an international treaty ending the unrestricted hunting of polar bears. Up till then, anybody could go to the Arctic, especially the millionaires from Chicago in the gun club, go up there and hire an Inuit guide and take home a couple of polar bear rugs. Well, that ended in 1973. And since then, the population has grown from somewhere between six to 8,000 to somewhere between 30 and 50,000. It doesn't sound like an endangered species to me, but that is the truth. And then they show you the polar bear clinging to a piece of ice. The, the, the nickname for polar bears is sea bear. S-E-A, bear, maritimus, right? Because they are really good swimmers and they don't just jump in the ocean and swim to their death. They jump in the ocean and swim to another iceberg somewhere, ice flow somewhere where they can hunt seals. They're very smart about that. And they don't live on the ice all year round. In the, in the summer, when, when some of the ice melts, they come ashore and eat different things then. And the, the females actually den in the summer, unlike our black bear and many other bears, which den in the winter to get away from the cold partly and get into a warmer cocoon type place. The, the polar bear breeds in the summer. So the, the females come ashore and den in the summer while the males scrounge for what food they can find. There isn't a lot of food on the land there, but they'll eat anything. We all love polar bears, but and we understand that they're doing okay. Uh, but I'd like to skip rapidly through some of these topics that uh, made me fall out of my chair because I I bought the common narrative. So we've got the uh, we've talked about CO two and how that uh, the the science of that doesn't match up. And there the uh, I if we can just skip through uh, ocean ocean acidif- acidification. I'd like to briefly address the. Uh, uh, the Roundup uh, thing with the GMO, and see if there's any thoughts you have about the justifiability of the GM, of the, uh, uh, you know, uh, of what's going on with Roundup and all that. The Golden Rice and the Plastic Ocean movie. I saw that movie and I thought we're screwed. You know, the environment's falling apart. So, uh, and then you you've gone over the nuclear, and I'll just briefly summarize that. That there there have been only there, have there been a any nuclear power deaths in the United States ever? No. No, there's never been a single one. There's there's nearly 100 nuclear plants running 24-7 in the U.S., and if you count Canada, there's over 100, and nobody's ever been injured, never mind killed, that I know of. I mean, maybe someone's been injured by a wrench falling on their foot, but nobody's been injured by the nuclear reactor itself. Like Dr. Moore, who was called Dr. Truth when he he worked with Greenpeace, he, uh, yeah, I, anyway, go ahead. I made the mistake back then because of the fear of nuclear war. Yeah, that's right. I made I the getting to that. lumping nuclear energy in with nuclear war like so many other of us and, did. And you had a vital I, role in, in getting rid of the nuclear bombs. Yeah, I recanted eventually, but like the rest of them have not. They're still pushing the idea that nuclear energy is dangerous when in fact it's about the safest technology we have for making electricity. The number of accidents with fossil fuels is intense and people fall off windmills all the time while they're putting them up. 
not all the time, but there's, there's a ratio of how many people have been killed by a certain technology versus the amount of energy that technology is producing. But the, the point is in the United States, there hasn't been any accident that's caused death from radiation from nuclear plants, not one. Amazing. And yet they're afraid of them still, or they pretend to be afraid of them. I'm not quite sure. Like the Pacific garbage patch, CNN said it was twice the size of Texas and growing 16 times faster than anybody had predicted. It doesn't exist. It's simply not there. There are satellite photographs to prove it from Germany. I, I, they're in my book. All of the pictures of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch are fake. They're, they're, they're photoshopped. They're not the real Pacific Ocean when they show you this big blob out there. And they face it the, the ones with the plastic in all the birds' mouths and the, the, it, it, the whales it, that have died of the plastic. They're all, they're documentably faked. They're totally, it's all totally fake. The whales didn't die of plastic. They show two sperm whales beached on a beach. Sperm whales have been beaching since time immemorial. Whale beaching is, a, we don't understand what, why they do it. But imagine a whale in the ocean underneath a bridge and some guy jumps off the bridge. Do you think the whale would know why the guy jumped off the bridge, <laughs> right? And no, no more than that, do we know why whales come up on the beach every now and again and kill themselves? Maybe it's suicide, but I doubt that. But you never know what it is. And, and maybe we can never figure that out. We can't understand the brain of a whale that well to know why it did that. But the fact is, there is no great Pacific garbage patch. And when you challenge people with that, they say, oh, but... But it's all the clear plastic, they say. That's why you can't see it. <laughs> can't see it, right? <laughs> yeah. and, then, and then their next fallback is it's just under the surface. Like as if every piece of plastic has a buoyancy compensation device on it. And because actually clear plastic sinks to the bottom. Uh, people don't. Colored plastic generally floats. Uh, and most of the plastic in the sea is discarded fishing gear, not pop bottles or, any, or, or straws. It's, it's people who are fishing who have damaged gear and don't want it to take up space on their boat because they want the space for fish and ice. And, and that's a, a problem that should be addressed because it's not a good idea to have a lot of fish nets floating around catching so, fish that never get used. So I read recently on a, on a very prominent website that it takes 500 years for plastics to degrade. And you publish in your book that um, they degrade rapidly. Well, they do, especially in sunlight. And if they're floating in the ocean, they're exposed to sunlight. Uh, the, the, the truth is, is that first off, they say it takes 2000 years for it to grade. And then they claim it's microplastic. There's this whole thing about microplastic in the oceans. Well, the, the, no, nobody's dumping microplastics into the oceans. There's plastic in the ocean and it degrades and it does, it does break down. But people who've actually gone out there and pulled filters through the water column to find the microplastic haven't been able to find it. It's all, a it's all just fake. There is no issue with plastic in the ocean. As a matter of fact, the irony of the situation is, is that plastic is, is good for the ocean in the same way driftwood is. Things grow on it. Life happens on it. I've been around the ocean all my life and all through Greenpeace Save the Whales voyages. I've been out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean many times. And when you see a piece of plastic, it usually has something growing on it. And that becomes food for other species. And whole life cycles occur around these pieces of plastic, just like with driftwood. Now, 
you'd think from what they say that as soon as plastic hits the ocean, it becomes toxic. Why, why do we wrap all our food in plastic if it's toxic? That's the reason we use plastic is to prevent contamination of our food. Plastic is inert. It is not toxic. And so what's wrong with a piece of non-toxic plastic floating in the ocean, especially when barnacles attach themselves to it and then other species come and pretty soon you have a whole colony of different species. There's hundreds of species that, that use driftwood and plastic as a habitat. And I've seen it with my own eyes and it doesn't look bad to me. It doesn't look like anything is being poisoned. While we're on the uh, oceans, can you talk briefly about the acidification? Yes, that, that is, whereas with CO2, it is a greenhouse gas and it could have an effect, but there's so many other factors that have larger effects that it's usually completely washed out of the picture in terms of having the main effect on anything. Water vapor. Whereas, yes, water vapor is by far the largest uh, greenhouse gas. And then there's, the, then there's clouds and then there's ice and water is by far the most important factor in controlling the Earth's temperature. Well, except for the ice ages, we'd have no idea why they happen, but we're in one now anyways. Thankfully, it's an interglacial period where Canada isn't covered in a mile or three of ice because I couldn't live here during the, the peaks of the glaciations. That mountain behind me has a small glacier on it. It's the Quiniche Glacier here in Comox on Vancouver Island. But during the last glaciation, the ice went up to just about the top of that mountain. When you see rounded off mountains, like the one closer there, that's a bit nicely contoured, that's where the glaciation contoured it, came over it and ground it down. Whereas the parts that are rough up top st were sticking up above the glacier. And you can see that everywhere in, in, in Canada that where, where, where the mountains are rough, the glacier didn't get that high and where the mountains are relatively smoothed off, it's because the glaciers did that. Um, Anyways, uh, ocean acidification is a complete fabrication. The oceans could never become acidic. They can become less alkaline. But when you think about it, they say the shells of all the marine calcifying creatures uh, will melt basically from acidification. Do they not know that there are freshwater clams and mussels that calcify in water that is actually acidic? All the lakes and rivers pretty much are slightly acidic, even down to pH six and five. Rainfall is acidic because it doesn't have any buffering capacity as the sea does from all the salts that are dissolved in it, which came from the land. All of the sodium and calcium and potassium salts that are in the sea, that's what makes it alkaline. And it, 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 it has a huge buffering capacity, 330 times the buffering capacity of fresh water. Fresh water is easily acidified or made alkaline with small amounts of, of, of molecules that are either acidic or alkaline. So basic in other words, um, it's just a complete lie and a made up fake thing. And the reason it happened, it happened in the late 1900s, 1990s, uh, and into the 2000s, it was 2003 when it sort of became a big deal. It was because the earth stopped warming for a period. It was called the uh, pause, 
in the Earth's warming. And so they had to think up something else. And that's what they thought up. They just made it up. There's no basis for it. Scientific American showed a, a more acidic and less acidic when it should have said more alkaline and less alkaline because the sea will never ever get below pH seven, which is where alkaline starts going up and acidity starts going down. It just can't happen. It is, it's theoretically impossible. So the, uh, the, but the main thing is, is, is that shellfish actually do calcify in uh, acidic water. Now, speaking of calcifying, that is something that has been kept from the general public. I announced my thesis in 2016. So that's now, what, seven years ago? Six, seven years. Six, seven years ago in London at the annual meeting of the Global Warming Policy Foundation. So everybody knows that this was done. It's in a video. Anybody can see it. The reason CO2 gradually declined over the millennia was because of the marine calcifying species. The clams, the mussels, the barnacles, the shrimp, the coral reefs are about 50% of it. All of those species learned nearly half a million billion years ago, nearly 500 million years ago, they learned to protect their soft bodies. When multicellular life first emerged, it was all like jellyfish. It had no, there was no shells. And those creatures, those multi-celled creatures learned to take calcium and carbon dioxide in the sea and make it into calcium carbonate, what we call limestone. All the limestone in the Earth's crust came from calcifying marine organisms. And it is hundreds of billions of tons. All that carbon was in the ocean before those calcifiers made it into shells. So they inadvertently presaged the end of life by continually sucking carbon dioxide out of the oceans, turning it into calcium carbonate, which sank to the bottom and was lost to the carbon cycle forever until we came along and started making cement. And in fact, about 5% of all the CO2 emissions we emit come from cement manufacturing because we take calcium carbonate and turn it into calcium oxide and CO2. And whereas with fossil fuels, we take hydrocarbons and turn them into CO2 and water. The two most important things for life is what we're putting into the atmosphere when we burn fossil fuels. And so carbon pollution has become a term this is a sign of complete scientific illiteracy to say carbon pollution. First, it's not carbon, it's carbon dioxide. When you emit, I mean, you can burn fuels badly with no pollution control and make soot, that's carbon. But we're not exactly putting a lot of soot into the atmosphere anymore, except when we don't manage our forests properly and they go up in flames because they haven't collected the dead wood out of them. You know, people don't realize that before fossil fuels, any forest that was around a town, people went out and collected all the dead wood in the fall, so they had firewood for the winter. So they were naturally managing the forest to be hardened to forest fires, to not, to not be susceptible to massive wildfires. Because if you take all the, the, the kindling and dead wood, the dead branches and, and, all, and dead trees off the ground, then the fire will no fire will ever go up into the crown. And that's the reason crown fires happen is because there's too much kindling, too much dead wood that's easily caught on fire by lightning or a cigarette or a campfire. Whereas if you clean the ground 
like they do in Europe. If you go to European forests, they come over here and they look at our forests and say, what a mess, you guys. Why don't you clean that thing up a little bit? You know, and it, it is true that dead wood provides some habitat and there's reasons to have some somewhere. It's, it's not, you don't want an extreme. You don't want to pave the floor of the forest. You want to have living things there, but you don't want a huge mass of dead wood. And after 10 or 20 years, that's what you get. And so the forests are being managed, especially the national forests, uh, but the federal government, they're being managed by green politicians in the cities who know nothing about forest management, the same in Australia, the same here in Canada. And if we don't change the way we manage the forests, we'll continue to get these fires. There are very few fires on private forest land. If you look at the US South, for example, where most of the timber comes from in the United States, those people are looking after their forests so they don't burn because they're valuable. Whereas a national park, nobody's making any money from it. Maybe there's a fee to get in there, but there's, there's no big income coming out of a national park. The national forests have basically been made into the equivalent of national parks now, whereas they used to provide a lot of income in forestry. They were supposed to be multi-use for recreation, for forestry, for fishing, for mountain climbing and all the other things whereas the national parks are meant to be protected as a preserved ecosystem. But the native people didn't do it that way for, for 15,000 years, and neither did the native people in Australia for 60,000 years when they came there. They started managing the forest by burning off the dead stuff in the spring when it was still moist and not so hot, and, and they picked times when the wind wasn't blowing too hard, and they'd clean the forest every year and collect firewood, of course. So to encapsulate it, we do have forest fires, but they are a mismanagement problem. Largely, yes. I mean, you can't stop lightning strikes, and but you can make the forest so that it won't just go up into a complete conflagration. Paradise, California, where the, the campfire was, uh, that burned down all those suburbs. Yeah. They built those suburbs in a pine forest right. so that trees were like right alongside the houses. And pine is pitchy. The coniferous trees are different from the broadleaf trees that way. If you plant oaks and maples and other broadleaf trees, you don't have that problem of massive wildfires because they won't burn like that. Whereas, whereas coniferous trees are very pitchy and that's, that's just like a kerosene. This is such a crazy story. I, I, I can't resist um, pushing you towards describing the GMO stuff a little more and the golden rice. I mean, that is a horrible story of mismanagement and basically starving people in third world countries. Yes, it is. Uh, the, the whole idea that there's something wrong with GMOs is in itself scientifically false. I mean, there is nothing in them that could be a problem. The only reason they're being made is to improve agriculture. They're being made to make plants resistant to insects. They're being made to make plants resistant to herbicides so you can control weeds and the competition that weeds. I mean, people who don't have farms don't understand how difficult it is to control weeds in agriculture. And the, the GMO uh, Roundup Ready is the, the name of the uh, of the of the process, those are, the, the, those are, are uh, able to withstand a, an application of herbicide. So 
you, you don't have to plow the soil to, to plow the weeds under before you plant your crop anymore. And when you plow the soil, you, you expose it to the air and oxidation and, and erosion. Zero till agriculture is one of the biggest advantages we've had in agriculture over the years. It, and zero till means you don't have to plow the soil. You can just inject the seed with, with, with a machine that pokes them in the ground and you get your crop. And as the weeds come up, you can spray them. And this, this, this is the whole reason why they are focusing on Roundup because there's nothing about the actual GM crop that, is, that, that could even be slightly interpreted as being toxic or whatever. But Roundup is a chemical, of course, and all chemicals are toxic, of course. And you know, this is the main thing they have on me is I, I said on TV that you could drink a cup of Roundup at the application, they put it on the crops and it would not harm you. They interpreted that as I said, I would drink a cup of Roundup and some a, a hostile interviewer right. tried brought to- brought along a cup. They bring, eat, drink this. <laughs> oh, wow. Going like, no, it's not a beverage. I just said, you, if you did drink it, it wouldn't hurt you but you don't drink herbicides. So, I mean, this, <laughs> so this idea that we're drowning in Roundup and that it has all these toxic long-term effects, that's fallacious too, or it's absolutely, unknown? Absolutely. So Roundup is, a, is something that doesn't have human effects. It's less toxic than vinegar. Oh my God. And that's less quite toxic, a story. It is not the, the narrative I've been listening those are, to. Those are verified facts. It's less toxic than table salt. See, because molecules... Are, are sometimes beneficial at low levels and not at high levels. And if you take table salt, for example, which is sodium chloride, contains chlorine, it is an essential nutrient for virtually all of life. You have to have it. But, but if a person were to ingest half a cup of salt, <laughs> it would dehydrate them and kill them. So some some materials are essential at low levels, not toxic up to a certain level where you really don't need that much, right? And then they become toxic. That's how toxicology works. In the same as in medicine, the first rule is do no harm. In toxicology, the first rule is the poison is in the dose. It has to do with how much of something you ingest as to whether it's toxic or not. Because up to a certain point, your body is capable of handling it like same with the cellular repair mechanism. I apologize for bouncing you around, but let me hear just a little bit about the golden rice and, and how many people starved because we didn't get that to the right markets for 20 years. Well, it's not that they starve, it's that they die of malnutrition. And uh, rice, normal rice has no beta carotene or any really hardly so any- So brown, brown rice doesn't have beta carotene, doesn't have oh, vitamin A? No. Uh, this is gen genetically modified to include vitamin A. Yes, that by using genes from corn, from maize, the yellow in maize is beta carotene, and as it is the orange in carrots. That's why they're called why it's called carotene because it's named after carrots. And that beta carotene is essential not only for your eyesight, because we turn it into vitamin A. Mammals cannot make vitamin A for themselves. They have to have beta carotene. Animals, all animals have to have beta carotene. And the, the beta carotene 
uh, as I say, is turned into vitamin A. Rice has no beta carotene. Corn does, if that's your staple. Potatoes do, sweet yams do. Uh, anything that's orange or yellow, pretty much, has beta carotene in it. But these are poor people in slums in cities and in far distant poor villages who do not get enough money to have anything other than a cup of rice a day, basically. And if you live on a cup of rice a day, it gives you your energy, you will survive, but you will die easier because beta carotene is not only necessary for eyesight, and we've known that for a long time, because you go blind if you don't get enough beta carotene. It's also essential for your immune system to work properly. So children will die from dengue and malaria and diarrhea where they would otherwise have lived through it if they had vitamin A to help with their immune system. And so somewhere between one and two million children, almost all in, in poverty, die of vitamin A deficiency every year, and half a million go blind every year before they die. So it's, it's a terrible affliction. They are dying quietly in slums with no attention from anybody. And Greenpeace refuses to make an exception for golden rice because it's a GMO. And we said to them, look, you guys, we're not gonna try to tackle your whole anti-GMO policy, but would you please just make an exception for this one humanitarian project? It, it was humanitarian scientists in Germany and Switzerland that invented this thing in 1999. It was announced in the magazine. And today still, it is not being delivered. Even though the Philippines have proved it at a reg have approved it at a regulatory level, the opposition to it that is fomented by Greenpeace and their leftist allies has prevented it from being adopted as a supplement. And it, all it takes is to eat the rice that contains the beta carotene. Now, in in, in nineteen in twenty thirteen, sorry, in twenty thirteen, Greenpeace put out a press release from the Philippines announcing that. Filipino farmers had gone into the International Rice Research Institute, which is a government facility supported by international philanthropy, and ripped out all the golden rice plants that were being on trial there. It was not Philippine farmers who did it. It was radicals from the city that Greenpeace bust in there, and then they were there to put out this press release claiming it was Filipino farmers who pulled the, the golden rice out of the ground. That made news around the world but it didn't, it didn't stop it. You know, Greenpeace is still preventing Africa from employing the benefits of GMOs. And Greenpeace is preventing Africa from enjoying the benefits of fossil fuels to make electricity. And Greenpeace is basically preventing the poorest people in the world from becoming into a lifestyle that lets you live to be a little bit older and makes you healthy. So that, 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 that's the effect they're having on the world today. The same thing with net zero. I mean, it, it is basically a suicide pact and people are beginning to recognize that. But these, I don't know why these people have so much influence. It's probably because 90% of the people today live in cities where they just don't pay attention to the fact that their entire city is made from concrete, steel, plastic, asphalt, and all these things are being mined out of the ground or grown. Wood is the basis for home construction, and all the other materials are coming out of the ground. Everything comes either from rocks or from wood or not much else. 
right? It, it, that, that, these are the materials that are required to support our, our place where we live and sleep. The really interesting question is what the heck is going on in these people's heads? And this is not just limited to ecology. Hard, the, all the hard sciences, all the hard, I'm sorry. I, I was unable to turn this thing off. All the hard sciences are adulterated with this kind of thinking. All of medicine is a mess. And uh, I mean, what, what, is, what is the motivation behind all this craziness? I mean, these, is it, it, you, you spoke about it being a religion one time I, I heard you well there's that aspect to it it's kind of like a cult religion but it's also based on sp striking fear into the hearts of women and men uh and getting control of them that way uh it's obviously about control uh as much as it is about money um but then control get gets you money um the, the, the underlying problem is that the, the, the invisible part of the cycle of fear is, this, is the politicians giving the scientists the money to, to create the scare stories. You see, nobody talks about that. 80% of all academic research is funded by government today. And that money is therefore being used by the politicians to get what they want, which is something to scare the people with so they'll vote for them because they're going to save them from that. And so the media and the uh, activists are just the bullhorns. They're just the megaphones for the scare story that the politician is putting out. But in the final analysis, it's the money flowing from the political class to all these universities who just can't resist the money. And as a matter of fact, if they resist the story, they're not gonna get any money. So they're afraid to critique any of this fake science that's coming out. And, and that's certainly what's going on book, in medicine with my Fauci book, and- My uh, book has over 1800 reviews on Amazon. It's available as a Kindle ebook, as a paperback, as a hardcover, and as an audio book. So any way you want it, you can get it. And it's not expensive. And you will find in there the truth about all of these issues. We didn't talk about coral reefs. Coral reefs are healthy. Coral reefs have the highest biodiversity in the warmest oceans in the world. The, the, the Indonesian archipelago has the highest biodiversity of corals. It's the warmest ocean in the world and represents a sanctuary to where corals have shrunk from when the earth was warmer, when corals were more widespread. It's a complete lie that they are threatened with heat. Absolute, complete lie. So it's all in my book and you will see in my book too, that nuclear energy could reduce, could take out 50% of fossil fuels. I wouldn't be against that. As a matter of fact, because the CEOs of the big oil companies support the narrative of global warming, why do they? Because if you restrict the supply of fossil fuels, the price goes up just like it has now, and they all get rich. And they know that. They are motivated to be against themselves by, by money pure larceny and greed, which happens to be the second most uh, primary sin, cardinal sin. The first is pride. In other words, self-importance, otherwise known as hubris. Why is pride the worst of all the sins? Because it can be disguised as a virtue. That's why my brother Michael taught me that before 
he passed on. And, uh, and greed is the second worst sin. And these people are guilty of both. They're smart ass, greedy people. And read my book. It's I tremendously enjoyed it. Many, many copies already. It has hugely good reviews, 95% four-star and five-star reviews with a bunch of people coming in with their one-star review, which is just a political move on their part. They don't, they're not adding anything to anything. So if, if you look at it, you will see that. And, you know, I, I try to stick to science, but pol politics, policy is really in the end what matters because it's the decisions we made about, make about what we're going to do and, and what we're going to emphasize. And so you have to look at the politics as well. And right now, this woke politics, I, I have no idea why they are trying to destroy their own cultures, but they are. There's no doubt about it. President Biden is, is, is adopting policies that are meant to damage the United States of America and the rest of the Western world. There's no other explanation for them. You wouldn't, you wouldn't do what he's doing unless you were trying to hurt your people. And that's what they're doing. So that's my politics. But I like to stick to science because it's, science should be the basis for policy. That's where we knowledge should be the basis for policy. But they have twisted the so-called knowledge to, to, to most of it being fake, like, like Roundup is going to kill everybody or whatever, and golden rice is a GMO, therefore we shouldn't use it to save 2 million kids from dying every year. That's the problem. Another hero of mine wrote a book called Everything You Think Is True Is a Lie. I believe that's it. It's Matt Briggs, Briggs wrote that book. And that's certainly been true for me in medicine over the last four years. I've learned all about that. Now, I really enjoyed your book. It was super readable. It was written down to a level that anyone can grasp. And it's an easy, quick scan without a lot of graphs and complicated material. So thank you so much for that. And I'm, you know, I, I will put the links to Amazon in that along with yeah other material thanks a lot robert you've given me a good platform here and i've enjoyed speaking with you uh thanks for being a sensible person i call myself the sensible environmentalist uh basing my opinions on science and logic rather than misinformation sensationalism and fear and i think you're the same in the same headspace i'm trying uh, thank you so much for coming on dr truth